All right, so why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 2, Exodus chapter 2. Uh, it goes to the book of Genesis, then the book of Exodus, uh, second book in the Bible. We've been in a series uh, on Sunday mornings going through the book of Acts, and uh, we took a break from that. So we've been, on a, as typical, we take books of the Bible and we just teach them and read verse by verse and chapter by chapter and let uh, the writers of those books inform and transform our understanding as to who God is. Um, but at the beginning of December, we wanted to focus our attention to really think about and understand, to give our attention over to uh, thinking hard and critically and, and um, enthusiastically in terms of, of who and what this whole season is all about with regard to Christ coming into this world, ultimately so that it would transform our lives, um, that we would pause and focus on Jesus, but also take a look at the bigger theme as to why God has come into this world. It's God's response, God's reaction to the brokenness in this world, and that's what we looked at last week. So four series, or four teachings in this series that we'll be taking a look at. Last week, we looked at the subject of brokenness and suffering. Today, we'll take a look at the subject of yearning. So again, typically, we take books of the Bible, we just let the Bible teach us, and there are times that we take um, pauses, and we allow themes to inform our understanding. That's kind of what we're doing right now. Is we're just looking at a series of themes, four of them, brokenness, yearning, hope, and then joy. They actually each build on each other. The first two, for the most part, brokenness and yearning, are, are ones that you and I as human beings, uh, we find ourselves um, entangled with. Uh, we know what it means to be broken. Our lives are often filled with brokenness. And either it's brokenness that's been brought upon us by somebody else, or we have been contributors of brokenness in the lives of other people. If you have no idea what I'm thinking about, talking about, uh, think about your parents, the grief that you've caused them, or back to you, the grief that maybe your parents have caused you. Um, that's, those are various forms of brokenness, or an authority figure in your life, or a pastor, or a friend, or another family member, somebody that has caused deep brokenness in your life. But then that leads into our response of how do we respond to suffering and brokenness in this world? And that's what we'll be taking a look at today, the subject of yearning. So to do that well, what I want to do is I want to lead with a question, and then we will anchor everything we're going to be looking at into a a biblical story or biblical narrative in the book of Exodus chapter 2, which in a lot of ways is sort of the quintessential storyline or narrative that kind of runs all throughout the entire Bible. It's the story of what we would call the Exodus. It's the story of God setting free this uh, community of people called Jews from the tyranny and the oppression of a guy by the name of Pharaoh and this uh, world global dominating empire called um, Egypt. And then ultimately that plays into much of the Old Testament where God is frequently revisiting the, the scenario that takes place in Exodus chapter 2 on. Um, and Jesus even has one of the most uh, definitive moments in his ministry gathered around the celebration of this, this story. It's uh, when Jesus breaks bread with his disciples and he says, this is the bread uh, that of my body has been given to you. And he, that's part of what we would call the Passover celebration, Passover meal. And so this is a really significant, important part of the story. So what I want to do is I want to lead with a question, and then we'll jump into the story and then begin to unpack and kind of follow the flow of the text and uh, hopefully make some sense as to how do we as human beings deal with and think about and process the reality of suffering in our world and transform that into something different. So here's the question. 
because all humanity, it's an assumption, because all humanity is broken and suffers, I think we would all agree with that, right? It's, it's real. All humanity is broken. All humanity for some point is suffering. Uh, the question is, how does one go about the transforming, go about transforming that grief into something beneficial, redemptive, or good? Uh, because all humanity is broken and suffers, how does one go about transforming that grief into something that's beneficial, redemptive, and good? That's the big question I want to try to wrestle with and think about as we consider the reality of yearning, which is connected deeply to this concept of, of suffering. So let's now turn our minds and our thoughts into the book of Exodus chapter 2, and I'll read what the story is, a little bit of backstory to this. Um, the story of Israel actually begins several hundred years or thousands of years even before that. Next slide. It has to do with the story of humanity. God creates everything in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, God then creates human beings. Human beings come onto the scene. God uh, creates this, this relationship with them, and they're to, they're to love God. They're to respond to God. They're to trust God. Um, when God says something that Adam and Eve were to respond accordingly to that, and yet that's not exactly what happened. Adam and Eve took it upon themselves to disobey God, which was rooted in distrust. So distrust and disobedience actually are sort of two sides of the coin. You can probably throw another side to that coin, which is suffering that comes as a result of distrust um, and disobedience. And so what we have is we see the story of Adam and Eve turning away from God. And if you want a good kind of graphical image of this, I think if you were here last week, I showed a video And the video was, uh, or a couple weeks ago, was a subject of covenant, whereby God makes his covenant with humanity. And the image that kind of came from the Bible project uh, of of this was God basically puts Adam and Eve into a garden, and the symbolic uh, reality of the garden is the tree of uh, good and evil, or tree of life. So imagine this tree, it's fruitful. So God gives this tree to Adam and Eve, and says, this is yours, enjoy it, uh, partake of it, cultivate it, nurture it. It will be for your life. Enjoy it. And yet Adam and Eve, uh, in the image, it's so classic, they rip the tree out of the ground and think, I'm going to take this for myself. This is good, and I will take it all for myself. But the moment in the image uh, they take it out of the ground, it, it dies. <laughs> and that, to me, is one of the greatest depictions of what we have human be- as human beings have done. We've taken the gifts, the goods, the kindness, the generosity of God that was indebted for life and uh, goodness and blessing, and we take it into ourselves and say, I want this exclusively for myself, and I don't want to abide by God's rules. And the moment we take that away and pluck it up out of its source and remove it from its source, it dies. So here we are as human beings, human agents, walking around with death in our hands, cultivating death, producing death, reproducing death. That's the story of, of humanity, and that brings about suffering and brokenness and ruin and death and decay, and all this stuff comes in. But here's the beautiful thing, because in the story of Genesis, uh, you get to the point uh, just a few chapters later, God does not cast them off. So you would imagine, you would suspect that God, what, what should God do to this, these agents that he created, Adam and Eve, who rebel against him? The very next chapter, I think it's like chapter 4, <laughs> Adam and Eve reproduce, and their, their sons, one of their sons kills their other son. So murder and death and rebellion and brokenness, all the things that you see and read about in the news is right there in the book of Genesis. So what does God do, this benevolent, loving, kind, 
uh, creator do to his own humanity that has completely vandalized his goodness? Does he cast him off? Does he wipe him off the map? Does he obliterate like the Death Star, planet Earth, and go create another one? Not at all. He actually enters into relationship with one guy by the name of Abraham, Abram, and then covenants with him and says, partner with me, partner with me, and I'm going to, you partner with me, partner with me, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing to every single nation upon this planet Earth. Abraham enters into this covenantal relationship, and Abraham basically becomes the father, he's the patriarch of this massive nation that we would call Israel. Abraham has a son by the name of Isaac, Isaac has a son by the name of Jacob, Jacob has sons, uh, say all their names, about 12 of them. And uh, these sons become the leaders of what we would know as the tribes of, of Israel. So, now, following along so far in the history, um, at some point, while the people of Israel are living in the land of Canaan, they encounter uh, uh, a famine. They don't have food. So they go to where the food is available. And in the context of the story, food is available um, with, with large portions to the south in the empire of Egypt. So they travel down to Egypt, they enter into that whole scenario, and after years, generations go by, rather than getting food and simply moving away, they stay down there, they remain down there, because, you know, you obviously don't have uh, any form of transporting large amounts of food, if you've got a very large family, it'd be better just to stay there. Uh, The people of Israel ended up staying in Israel. So fast forward several hundred years, it now becomes this oppressive relationship. They are the minority, living in this massive, uh, sprawling kingdom called Egypt, underneath this tyrant by the name of Pharaoh. You guys following so far? You guys doing all right? And they become the victims of the brutality of Pharaoh. And they begin to suffer under the brutality of this, uh, this horrible tyrant. This is where we enter the story. So here we go. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. It says, during those days, the king of Egypt Died. So this kind of sets the stage that whatever king that was in place had some sort of decent relationship with the people of Israel. And again, if you know the story of Joseph, and I won't go into all that, um, you know that, that they had a pretty good setup. Uh, but that Pharaoh dies, and now we're told that there's a new king, new Pharaoh that comes into play. It says, and the people of Israel, they groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard the groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Uh, I found it kind of helpful to sort of put this whole entire passage into kind of a nice little diagram. So here, here's, the, here's the diagram. There's three key players here. One, Pharaoh. Two, the people of Israel. Three, God. First, Pharaoh. He is the oppressor. He oppressed people of Israel. That's implied within the passage there, uh, based upon the fact that the people of Israel, they suffered. The second is we see Israel, they groaned and cried. The actual Hebrew for those two words are, 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 are very similar. They sound similar. Uh, I'll say them. This is my best attempt at reading Hebrew. Anak and Zahak. Anak and Zahak. They anaked and Zahak. They groaned and they cried out to God in the midst of this oppressive regime under the heavy hand of Pharaoh. But here's the amazing thing. In fact, even in the passage here, uh, it does not say they actually cried out to God. This is an interesting like, little, uh, little bit of information. Uh, it doesn't tell us specifically they actually cried out to Yahweh. Um, perhaps they knew who Yahweh was, but the other 
uh, assumption could be that this is a generation after generation after generation of people of covenant. These are the sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, generation after generation, all the way down the line, perhaps they've drifted away from Yahweh. They may have forgotten about Yahweh, and in the midst of their oppression, Yahweh has not forgotten them. The, the implication is that God, though we forget our end of the covenant, our bargain, God never forgets his. It's, the implication is that God is faithful. God never goes back. God never defaults on his fidelity, ever, ever. And so here we see them crying out to God. They're groaning and crying. And we're told four responses from Yahweh. It says, God heard. He heard their cries. God remembered, he remembers the covenant that he made with their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw, he was, he was not oblivious, he was not ignorant, he was not indifferent to their suffering, to their pain, to their hardship, and then ultimately it says that God, God knew. And the implication is that God knew what he was to do. God knew what his role was in responsiveness to this covenant. So four ways to describe what God was up to beyond the oppression and suffering of the people of Israel. They were suffering. They cried out. To, they cried out. God, Yahweh, responds and begun, begins to do something. That's what this whole Christmas season is all about. We celebrate God sending Jesus into this world to do something for us. We don't deserve it. Many of us are indifferent. Many of us don't even think about it. Many of us just go on with the rest of our life. Many of us are trying the best to make do with whatever life hands us or throws at us or slaps at us. And at the end of the day, we have a God that does not, will not forget about you. Pursues you. He loves you. That, that's the reality. That's the story. It's, it's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that we should not perish the arc of human history is, is one arc that's consistently on a path towards perishing. But God seeks to disrupt, to interrupt that perishing, that path towards brokenness. This is the God that we see introduced to us in this story. And consistently, repeatedly coming back over and over and over again, cycling through every page of the Bible. And ultimately coming to the most colorful graphically beautiful, ornate, and compelling portrayal of God's love in the person of Jesus. That it has something to do with the brokenness and the suffering of humanity. It has to do with something of responding to in a way that leads to life. So, with that being said, I want to talk a little bit about the subject of brokenness and suffering. It leads me to my question that I want to just unpack a little bit. We'll get into some passages. But one of the things I thought would be really good, next slide, to consider and think about is how is brokenness and suffering understood in our world? The reason why I want to uh, tackle this and think about this a little bit critically uh, for a couple reasons. One is, for one, all of us, uh, we are, for the most part, products of, I mean, if you're a follower of Jesus, um, we have various and a variety of forms of things that are shaping the way that you think. Um, if, you, if you're not a Christian, uh, there's, uh, I, I would say this, all of us, no matter who we are, Christian or non-Christian, we are all being shaped by, and our ideas and our mindsets are being shaped by all sorts of ideas and influences in this culture. If you're a Christian, um, we want to have our mind shaped and informed by God. But in order to do that well, I think what we need to do is we need to critically review and think about what are the other potential ideas and concepts 
that might be shaping the way that we think. So to do that well, I think we have to look at the subject of how has the subject of suffering um, and brokenness been addressed within culture at large. And I think uh, according to a lot of the research and information and homework that's done by one of my favorite preachers, a guy by the name of Tim Keller, uh, he's, he's written about this, and all this basically just comes from him. I'm just regurgitating it. Welcome. But he's done a lot of research and kind of uh, digging into this, and he basically points out there's, uh, for the most part, five major worldviews, and how they think about suffering is really important because I would suggest that the reality is that many of us have some forms of these shaping the way that we think about suffering. We have to address those. We have to think about those. And then ultimately, that will help us to contrast how the scripture speaks about the subject of suffering. Does that make sense? So let's take a look at these real quick. One, we'll take a look at, first of all, the, one of the first major worldviews of suffering is the idea that I would describe, or he describes as Hindu. Um, this is kind of within the concept of, of karma. Um, it's the idea of, or ideology of what comes around, goes around. It's really this idea that hardship is uh, the byproduct of past bad decisions. Now, I'll just have to say this up up front, that we're going to go through these things pretty quickly, and I realize that whenever you go through things pretty quickly, you always have the potential of of leaving out important raw data, and and I'm not trying in any way to to, uh, reduce any of these large concepts down or miss certain things intentionally. I'm definitely not trying to create uh, a straw man out of these, so so if if I'm doing that, uh, forgive me, but for the sake of time, I just have to kind of keep this sort of uh, synthesized to some simple ideas. So the concept of Hindu is, again, this idea that hardship is based upon uh, past bad decisions. The theory is that if you do good, uh, that you can somehow break the cycle of, of evil. That in a future life or reincarnation, reincarnated, which is the concept of carnation. We say the word incarnation, God come into this world. Reincarnation is the hope that you will one day come to life again, and in that future life, based upon how you lived in your past life, you can break that cycle. So how do we deal with suffering? Well, for the most part, suffering is, in our current life, the result of past lives that I've done not so well. So if in your past life, you're evil, right, and and you don't know that you're evil because you don't really know your past life, so there's ways in which you can try to understand what you did and how you did in the past life, but the idea is to overcome that by doing good now. By doing good now, you can maybe break that cycle, that karmic cycle. And, uh, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine that the concept of instant karma is actually kind of a, um, a distortion of, of this. There is no such thing as instant karma. Karma is the idea of something that happened to you uh, that you did years ago in past lives that is impacting your, your current life. So that's the idea. But the concept is, is popular in today's culture. It's the idea that somehow we can break the chain of suffering by doing really good, by working really hard. The second of which is what I would describe as Buddhist. This is a concept of like Zen. Uh, pain and suffering are really the byproduct of desires that are wayward. Um, the theory, for the most part, is that if you eliminate or you minimize your desire, um, and you will then somehow be able to minimize the type of suffering. If you can eliminate or control the desires that are wayward, that are bad, that are evil, then you can also at the same time minimize the type of suffering. So that somehow suffering is actually linked to various types of expectations. In some ways, there's, there's truth to this. Um, that if you have an expectation, a friend of yours, they're like, hey, I'm going to meet you at 5 o'clock today. 
and they show up at 6 o'clock. You're, you're bummed, right? Right, you're bummed because you're like, I waited here for a whole entire hour. I'm really upset with you. But if they're like, I'm going to be there at 6 o'clock and they get there at like 5.45, 15 minutes early, you're like, oh, this is, this is awesome. So your suffering or elation is going to be dependent upon expectations that you set for them. So in some ways there's truth to this. But the, the point of the matter is in a larger concept of, of life, what you love, what you have your affections up, upon, um, if, if you love something in this world and it's prone to decay or rust or destructiveness, then when it decays and rusts and destroys or evaporates or goes away, then your heart is also uh, decayed and rust and broken away with it as well. So the concept that they would basically describe, there are four noble truths, and the four noble truths go something like this. First noble truth is that um, the whole world is full of suffering, that you know, the idea is that suffering is inescapable. Everyone suffers. Second noble truth is the truth of uh, the cause of suffering. That the cause of suffering is actually, in the, according to the second noble truth, it stems from the desires of hatred and greed and ignorance, which ultimately poison the mind. The third noble truth is the truth that there is an end of suffering. So again, this should cause ears to perk up, like, oh, suffering. Suffering is something I engage in. Um, and when you start throwing out solutions like end, you're like, oh, end. How do I end the cycle of suffering? The end of the cycle of suffering, uh, according to them, they would basically describe is to basically stop the destructive desires of thinking and to think differently. Um, and then fourth noble truth is the truth of the path that frees us from suffering. And this kind of would open up or expand into what's called the eightfold path towards enlightenment, the idea of, of of nirvana, the concept of, of being able to be fully enlightened. Now, the third one is the idea of what I would describe as Islamic. Islamic, And this basically has a really high view of fate or destiny. It's the idea that Allah is the supreme, masterful being over all uh, creation. In some ways, that sounds very reminiscent of Christian concepts, but they would go so far as to say that he determines everything. So it's very deterministic. Um, or another word in which you can describe it is fatalistic. Not, not like fatal, like there's fate. Fate, you don't challenge, you don't wrestle with fate. What you do with fate is you just simply surrender to fate. So if you talk to Muslims that understand their faith, they would say, my number one job in life is not to protest, not to resist Allah, but to simply completely surrender to him. So whatever happens is what happens. I, I surrender myself entirely to the will and the purposes of Allah if it involves suffering, death, whatever, I surrender to whatever it is that Allah has determined. Very deterministic in that sense. Fourth is what I would describe as dualistic, or uh, another big word is Zoroastrian. It actually comes from ancient Persia. Here's another one I really like. It is actually the, uh, the Star Wars religion, all right? Um, maybe you didn't know that. Star Wars is actually um, purporting a, a religion. Maybe you didn't know that. And I'm not bagging on Star Wars. I absolutely love Star Wars, and I can't wait at all for the, the next Star Wars going to be coming out. But it is also based upon a religion, which is very closely linked to this. And it's the idea of kind of yin and yang, light and dark, good force, bad force. And the concept basically goes something like this, that the light and dark are basically two opposite ends of uh, polarities. One is, one is uh, light, one is dark. And whatever type of suffering that is incurred within this world is somehow the derived from these two forces that are just are. You don't, you don't, you don't, you, the best thing that you can maybe try to do is try to harness one of them to manipulate the other as best as you can. But it's, it's, you just, you surrender to it. It's impersonal. 
There's nothing personal about it. You don't pray to it. You don't seek it. You don't get on your knees to it. You You just surrender to the force and do the best that you can to somehow manipulate it. The fourth or the fifth one I would say is uh, very popular within major Western uh, progressive uh, societies, and obviously America would be one of those, and what it would be I would describe and Keller describes as Western secular materialistic worldview, uh, the Western secular materialistic worldview. And this is kind of the idea that, that all things based upon science and based upon uh, particularly microevolution, not so much macroevolution in terms of Things are shifting and changing. There's arguments that can be stated that, yes, it happens. But microevolution, that somehow things are just uh, coming to be by based upon millions and millions and millions of years, and there is no outside forces, uh, no, no, no idea of God or uh, intelligence behind all that. It just is. Uh, you don't fight it. You don't resist it. You just simply embrace it and accept it. It's kind of the idea that, that there really is no meaning. There's really no meaning or purpose to... Existence. We, we're just we're accidents. In other words, we we just exist. The best thing that we can do is to somehow make our own experiences uh, reality, and to make our own experiences meaningful. Um, so, because there is no meaning beyond your meaning that you give it. So, uh, and, you know, I mean, in reality, this at some point breaks down. But here's here's I'll just I'll let um, the famous uh, scientist. Richard Dawkins kind of give a really important quote that I'll just let him kind of share from his perspective because he would definitely fit within this worldview. He says it's the total amount of suffering, again, concept of suffering, and different lenses. So again, here's a point I would make before I read this. All of us have lenses by which how we view suffering. Um, um, my guess, because for the most part, we are shaped by the culture at large. Some of us might share various ideas of suffering, the various lenses of the various five that I, that I just read. Um, my hope would be, would be to convince you that there is a different lens to view suffering. That's radically different. And it's actually more transformative and more beneficial and more life-giving than, than all these other ones. But listen to Richard Dawkins. He says, the total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces, and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties that we would expect. At the bottom, there is no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Later on, he would go on to say... Let's get up off of our knees, stop cringing before boogeymen and virtual fathers, face reality, help science do something constructive about human suffering. So again, uh, I, would, I would argue that a guy like Richard Dawkins, who's, who's very smart, in my opinion, very smart, very genius, um, he's looking for reasonable answers to explain suffering. So is Buddha. So was the leaders of Zoroastrian. Uh, all of these are attempts to try to make sense, to try to frame, to put in a frame of reference, suffering. I would suggest that every one of us in this room, we do the same. Every one of us. We're trying to figure out. Now, for the most part, what we do as a culture, I would say, we have a lot of things that are available to us at our fingertips that help us to quickly anesthetize ourselves to suffering. So when suffering comes upon us, 
We get drunk. We take drugs. We have sex. We download porn. We watch like a lot of episodes on Netflix. We do whatever it is that we can to somehow numb our ability to have to think critically about these things. But the problem is when you are no longer drunk, when the drugs are no longer impacting you, and when the sexual experience is finally over uh, and life is going on, you still have not left the realm of suffering. It's still there. It's still there. So the reality is, as I was thinking about this, and trying to make sense of this myself in terms of looking at all of these other ideas and concepts of suffering, um, all of the five, for the most part, present a concept of suffering that's deeply impersonal and on the most, for the most part involves deep practice on your behalf. So here, here's, here's a couple examples of this. Uh, the Hindu idea, really the answer to somehow advancing through suffering is to do to do really hard, work really hard, to be really good, to be a really good person, to better yourself as a human being now. The more better you live now, the greater hope you are instilling in a future of breaking the karmic cycle. Does that make sense? So it involves you in your effort doing the best that you can. Now, obviously, the problem with that, is it good to be a good person? Absolutely, it's really good. Try to be a good person, all right? It's better than being a horrible person. But the fact of the matter is, at, at the end of the day, these standards, we oftentimes can't even keep ourselves. We break. We fail. So what happens when we fail? What happens when we break our standards, even our own standards of being good, of being kind, of being forgiving, being nice? What happens? We're, I mean, we're just adding another, like, 5,000 years of the karmic cycle. So there's really no hope there. There's really no hope. The hope is entirely rooted in my ability to do. Here's another one to think about. For example, the concept of uh, Buddhism, which kind of involves to some degree some level of denial, denial of my desires, and ultimately deep discipline. Again, it involves my role of denying key desires that are part of life that make life really good, right? Eating's really good, sex is really good. All of these things can be really good as they are put into the right place, but the idea of Buddhism would, for the most part, again, I, I don't want to simply collapse or reduce these things down, but the point is, is to deny and a sense of redisciplining yourself to life has this hope that it will remove the sense of uh, pr the presence of suffering, or at least somehow curtail it. it the Islamic idea kind of, uh, again, there is no sense of relationship. It involves simply... Uh, surrendering oneself, or the concept of submission, submitting oneself to the fate of the universe. Now, in Islam, he is a personal God, but not personal in the sense of come near, hang out with me, spend time with me, love me, uh, be drawn into my presence. There is a, a deep sense of fear oftentimes that accompanies those because of the determination, the, term, the, the determinism of them. So the final thing that I would just simply say is this as I would move on to the very next question, I'll finish this up, is really what is the process through which the scriptures, all right, this is where we want to inform our minds, through which the scriptures actually uh, hope to bring about transformation, uh, transforming, I should say, our brokenness and suffering into something that's life-giving and redemptive. So let me read that again. What's the process throughout scripture for transforming brokenness and suffering into something that's life-giving and redemptive? So actually, scriptures offers a radically different narrative where the scriptures basically presents this reality. It says, yes, there is suffering. But yes, on the other side of suffering, there's the hope of new life. There's the hope of redemption. 
There's a hope of something good, something life-giving, something that does not have to lead to death and destruction and ruin your own ruin or the ruin of somebody else, that there is the hope of redemption. This is the hope of what scriptures point out. So three things I would say. One, it involves turning to God. It involves turning to God. The second thing it involves is talking to him about your grief, sorrow, suffering, brokenness. Uh, This is the idea of prayer, intercession. It's the idea of basically bringing to God the acknowledgement of your suffering, your pain, your grief, your loss, and saying, God, I don't get this, I don't understand this, but I'm pressing into you. This is where the concept of yearning comes from. That my grief, my suffering, my bitterness, the hardship I'm going through is forcing me to do something. Either it's forcing me to try to be a better person so I can break the cycle of future generations, or it's pressing me into God to where I'm crying out saying, God, I don't get this. This doesn't make sense to me because on one hand, I hear rumors that you're a good God, that you're kind, your scripture seems to point out to that. But on the other hand, I'm in the depths of bitterness right now and I don't make sense of this. But I'm looking to you for answers. God, help me. So throughout scripture, this is one of the patterns that we see. And this is actually surprising. Okay, Psalm 88. If you don't believe me, write down Psalm 88 and read it on your own time. It's a fascinating psalm. It's a psalm that I actually read uh, about two years ago, two and a half years ago. Some of you guys know if you were around here back then. Um, I had actually gone through a really dark season in my life. I had been diagnosed with something that was growing on my, on my, on my uh, vocal cords, and it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't pretty. Like it, at the end of the day, the doctor was like, yeah, it could be cancer, and if it's cancer, um, we're going to have to operate, and if we have to operate, we, you know, there's, we don't really know exactly what the future will, will hold for you. So for me, who absolutely 100% depends upon my voice to do what I do, um, the, the thought of actually having a future that involves no voice or not the ability to speak or even worse, maybe having the ability to speak but at a, at a vocal range that's like really high-pitched or something like that, I'd, I'd be embarrassed of. Like, like that's, that's devastating to me. So all sorts of questions are going through my mind of like, what does my future hold? Will I, will I even be able to do what I love to do? Or, I mean, I mean what's the worst-case scenario? Like, I, I die from this. Like, that, that, that'd be a bummer. I won't be able to be there for my daughter's weddings and be there for my wife. And, you know, again, my mind is racing and all these things. And I remember stumbling across Psalm 88. And Psalm 88 is a psalm which is typically called a psalm of lament. Um, there's, there's absolutely nothing good to be said about God in the psalm, right? Um, it's kind of shocking, because the psalmist is just basically taking God to task. He's like, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you allowing all these things? Why are you treating me this way? There's other passages, like, for example, in the book of Job, and throughout the book of Job, where Job actually accuses God. God, you're treating me like a lion that plays with its food. Imagine this. Imagine going to the creator God of the universe and saying, God, I don't get it. My heart, my life, my, my, my suffering, the bitterness in my soul, the way that I'm feeling right now, I feel literally like you are playing games with me right now. And yet God doesn't strike him down. It's shocking. Psalm 88 actually ends with this word in Hebrew. It just says darkness. That sets the whole tone for the entire psalm. Do you know that two-thirds of the entire psalm book is what's called lament. It's, it's literally wrestling with God. It's literally going to God and saying, God, I don't get you. I don't understand what you're doing, who you are, what you're doing, how things are happening and shaping up within my life, within the community, within the world at large. Make absolutely no sense to me. Prayer 
in that sense, is, is like a protest to God, saying, God, I need you. It's yearning. It's transforming the suffering into some protest to God, saying, God, I need you. These things are way beyond me. I don't understand them. I can't make sense of them. I know that you're good because somehow your word has affirmed to me that you're good, but I can't make sense of how. I can't bring all these things together because they seem radically incongruent. The scripture welcomes that. In fact, I would even go so far as to say the scripture is all about this, this arc all throughout that says this is what it means to walk with God. This is what it means to think about suffering. It doesn't mean to deny it. It doesn't mean to just simply submit mindlessly, brainlessly to this all-powerful being up there without any protest, it actually is far more beautiful because of who God is and the nature of who God is. God says, I invite you into covenant, in relationship, in relationship. If you know anything about relationships, you know that oftentimes it involves this giving and taking, this wrestling, this working through challenging and difficult circumstances. And this is what Yahweh invites his people. This is what the people of Israel were doing, crying out to God. Here's other one final thing as I wrap this up. Uh, turn real quick, or you can just look at up on the screen, Psalm 22, which is an amazing psalm. Uh, psalm 22 basically says this. It's a psalm of David, but it's a prophetic psalm of David. In fact, um, when Jesus died on the cross, uh, there are seven statements that Jesus made from that season of his life that were actually recorded in, in, in the New Testament gospel accounts. Seven statements. This is one of the statements that Jesus says. So as he's on the cross, he cries out, with a loud voice, verbatim, he quotes this psalm, first four, uh, few verses of the psalm. And he says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The rest of the psalm would go on to say, uh, why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my, my, my groaning. The idea of groaning actually is derived from this narrative of the people of Israel. Groaning. Underneath the weight of the oppression. Underneath the weight of sin. Underneath the weight of the brokenness of a Pharaoh. And here Jesus literally is on the cross associating himself with the very nation that groaned. And this is Jesus' way of saying, I have come to not just simply give you advice and information about how to live life better. I've come to fully indulge myself in the human experience of your pain, of your suffering, to know what it feels like to feel betrayed, to know what it feels like to feel suffering, to know what it feels like to have pain, and ultimately to know what it feels like to go beyond pain and suffering to the productive actions of forgiveness and welcome. And that's what we see that Jesus does. So he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the book of Job, and if you're familiar with the life of Job or the narrative of Job, you know that Job suffered much, right? Job kind of becomes this, uh, this depiction of what it means to suffer. I mean, if you're going through gnarly stuff, people are like, whoa, it's like Job, right? So he becomes sort of this icon of suffering. But at one point in Job's experience, I think it's around Job 9, if I'm not mistaken, he's wrestling with God. And the book of Job is fascinating because he is radically wrestling with God. He's literally calling God. There's even portions in the book of Job that are actually written in sort of this, this poetic language which Job sets himself, himself up as the, uh, as, the, uh, as the lawyer who is literally critiquing and criticizing God. God, what, I'm going to call you to task on this. And finally, the book of Job, 
God basically says, I'm going to ask you, Job, a bunch of questions. And what's interesting, spoiler alert, with regard to the book of Job, don't read the book of Job to try to figure out why suffering happens, because the book of Job does not give you the answers. But ultimately what it does show you is that there's a God who understands what it's like to suffer. There's a God that's in control of all things. And he's not just in control of all things somehow creating this fatalistic worldview, but he's a God that knows how to relate on the level of those who suffer in a way that's absolutely profound. The question is, the final one, uh, statement is to trust God. So why don't we go back to the slide real quick with the three different things. One, the idea of turning God. Second of which is talking to God, sharing with him our grief, our sorrow. And the final one is, is trust. So the question is, how do we trust God? Because this is re- really where everything boils down to. Because again, if this is, I think it's one of the reasons why there is an appeal to all of these other perspectives of suffering. Here's why. Because it involves no relationship at all. They're deeply impersonal. So if you just simply act and work really hard and put on your schedule of all these things that you're going to try to do really hard, you're the one that's in control. If it's like the Star Wars, you know, version of religion, you're in control. It's about you learning new skills, learning new attitudes, learning new abilities to manipulate the light or the darkness. You're in control. If it's simply submission, uh, at the end of the day, there is a sense where when we see with regard to the scripture is that God is deeply personal and invites us to him. That means it involves, literally, here's like great Christian language, a personal relationship with God. It's true. There's, there's no denying that. Christianity is about literally having a personal interaction, involvement, relationship, covenant with God. That means we call out to him. We go to him. We, we find ourselves becoming vulnerable before him. And here's why that makes us uncomfortable. That involves trust. It's one of the reasons why when you're at Scout or Linnea's or some other great coffee shop in town, you don't just go up to random strangers and start sharing with them your past brokenness. You just don't do that unless you're, you're weird. But the fact of the matter is you just don't do that. Or you don't go back to an old boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or spouse or relationship with somebody that that completely betrayed you and be like hey listen I got some really heavy stuff I want to share with you because you will never do that because you're afraid they're going to break your heart again it's trust trust issues why sometimes people won't go back and talk to their folks or the parents because they betrayed them they hurt them they wounded them it has to do with trust and yet the very heart of the gospel is God saying I've not denied you I've come to you Trust me. The question that we wrestle is, is, is really, can God be trusted? Can we truly trust God? How do we know we can trust God? How do we know that God can relationally understand what I'm going through? Another way, how do we know that God can actually relate with my grief, my suffering, my brokenness, my hurt? How do we know that? And this is where the gospel becomes so profound. This is where Christmas is awesome. Because that's what Christmas is about. It's about God entering into our stuff, our brokenness, our hurt, our wounds, to do something about it. So listen to this last passage, and I'm done. In the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 4, it says this. I'll just read this. You can listen along. Hebrews chapter 4 says this in verse 15. He says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And I'll just pause real quick and think about this, because uh, most of us don't think about high priests in, in any uh, meaningful way. 
since we probably don't use the phrase high priest very often in our language, right? When was the last time you used the word high priest? God bless you, by the way. Um, so think about this high priest. High priest in ancient biblical language was, this was, this was a person that was selected by God, um, typically part of what's called the Levites. It was a tribe of Levi. He was one of the sons of Jacob. And uh, he, his job was basically to be a priest. So what does that mean? Well, a priest uh, basically lived their life in a way of being a representative of the general population to God and being a representative of Yahweh to the general population. So they kind of functioned as this go-between. You'd go to the priest, and the priest would uh, bring your sacrifice to God. Uh, but because the priest was not perfect, he sinned, he had to bring sacrifices to God on behalf of himself first, then he could actually go and bring your sacrifice on behalf of uh, yourself for God. All right, uh, before God. Um, but the fact of the matter is, he's saying here, right of Hebrews, that Jesus is our high, pri- high priest. He says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect, he has been tempted just as we are, yet without sin. So when we say things like, God truly cannot understand the type of temptation and experience the type of things that I experience. That's exactly what the Hebrew, writer of Hebrews is saying. No, that's actually not true. God knows exactly what it's like to be tempted in all points, in all sorts of ways, in ways that you can't even imagine. God knows what it's like to be tempted. Jesus knows that. He experienced it, yet says that he was without sin, which means he never gave into it. He never fell prey to these things. He never subscribed, entered into the life of taking the tree up out of the ground and saying, my way. He always stayed true to saying Yahweh's way. Always Yahweh's way. Though he was tempted. Why? How? Because he came into this world. And he goes on to say, verse 16, let us then with, sorry, uh, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying, is that because God knows what you're going through, you can trust him. You can go to him. You don't have to avoid him. You don't have to run from him. You can actually press into him. So transform your suffering into yearning for him because he knows you. He knows what you're going through. Verse 5, he says, Jesus did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. In other words, Christmas. This is God saying, Jesus was brought into this world. God appointed him to be this mediator. Jesus is literally a fulfillment of what Job was longing for. Job, in his mind, he's thinking, is there somebody, anybody that can represent my painful existence to God? And this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying, that yes, somebody knows exactly what you're going through and knows how to have his hand within the realm of heaven, touch God, and also have his hand within the realm of earth and suffering and pain and brokenness and bitterness and understand you. And this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He is the perfect high priest that goes in between us and God. Last slide, finish with this. He says, in the days of his flesh, when Jesus was alive, again, writer of Hebrews is writing after. Jesus has already ascended into heaven. He's with God. He's no longer on this planet. So he's saying, in the days of his flesh, when Jesus walked around the Sea of Galilee, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Imagine that. Here's, he's pointing back to Jesus crying out to God. Again, these are, these are words that would link you back to the story of Israel. In the midst, under the oppression of Pharaoh, 
the tyranny, the brokenness, the crushing weight of all the expectations that were placed upon this people group, this minority who are helpless, here's what he's saying, that Jesus completely associates with the people of Israel, which really, for the most part, are this depiction of all humanity. He gets it. He knows what types of suffering that we're going through. He says in verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through all that he suffered. And he being made perfect, he became the source of eternal life or salvation to all who obey him. So what we see here in the picture of Jesus is we see that even though he suffered, even though he took upon himself this complete crushing weight of brokenness, rebellion, though he was never rebellious, though he never sinned upon himself, he did not turn away. And so think about it this way. If Jesus did not turn away from God in his deepest agony, which is sometimes what we do, in our deepest agony, we turn away from God rather than press into him. Jesus did not turn away from God. If Jesus did not turn away from God in his deepest agony, why would he turn away from you in yours? We have this God that doesn't cast us off. That even though we suffer, even though we find ourselves under the heavy weight of brokenness and sin, sometimes it's sin that we have caused. Sometimes it's sin that has come upon us. So the reality of being human means that we will not just simply be victims, which means we absorb other people's sinful proclivities and actions or are victims of it, but we are also oftentimes victimizers. We not only uh, absorb other people's sinful actions and consequences, but we also create sinful actions and consequences for other people. In other words, we not only receive brokenness from the hands of other sinners, we also, as sinners, cause brokenness and hurt in the lives of other people. We are all part of this broken humanity. But here's where the grace of God is amazing, astounding, is he doesn't abandon us. He doesn't leave us to rot, to come undone. He comes to us. That's what Christmas is all about. He takes upon himself the same suffering and grief and pain that we find ourselves going through, which means that the Christian narrative is that we don't deny suffering. We don't just merely submit to it. We trust God in the midst of it, and we hope that God will somehow make good out of this. One final thing I'll say is that those that come out the other side of suffering, trusting God, oftentimes can be the most compassionate, kind, amazing people you will ever meet. This is why, like for example, there's a gal in our church. Uh, she had given birth to a child, and the child was born with severe disabilities. Severe disabilities. Today, on the other end of this, their family is trusting God. It's been painful. It's been challenging. It's not been easy at all. But on the other side of this, because they have gone through severe tragedy and suffering and difficulty, they could have turned against God, but they didn't. They focused on God. They pressed into God. They wrestled with God. They did what Psalm 88 does with regard to God. God, why are you allowing this? Why are you treating me like a cat? playing around with his prey, but at the end of the day, all of these wrestlings were done out of faith and confidence that somehow, God, I, I know you're good. I don't see the goodness. I, I know at the end of the day, somehow, you're in the middle of all this. I don't see it now. I'm not making sense of it right now, but somehow, God, someday you will. On the other side of this, these people have been able to bring about so much encouragement, blessing to other people that have gone through very similar crises in their lives. That's the story of the gospel. We have a God that comes into this world 
suffers, but doesn't become bitter. Instead, rises from the dead and doesn't come back with vengeance, with a sword in his hand, but comes back with the word of forgiveness. And he invites us to join that story. That's what Christmas is all about. It's about recognizing, yes, we are surrounded by suffering and brokenness, but we are invited by God to allow that suffering to be transformed into something that is productive, that leads to life and goodness and hope. And that begins by yearning. That begins by turning our hearts and all of its grief and suffering Godward. So that's the invitation to you now. I don't know what types of circumstances you're going through. Some of you, tough stuff. Some of you are going to be facing tough stuff. You don't even know what that stuff is yet. Some of you have come out of tough stuff. But the invitation is to see, first of all, that you have a God that has gone before you. And he took upon himself the most agonizing tyrant of them all. Not Pharaoh, but the Pharaoh beneath Pharaoh. Satan himself. And brought victory. And invites us into that victory. So this invitation for you is to see this God that has done great things for you. And to receive it. And let it transform you. And to press into him. To bring your grief to him. To bring your suffering to him. He's big enough. He won't cast you out. He won't shake you off. He won't destroy you. He'll welcome you. That's what faith is. So why don't we all stand. Let's respond. Come on up. I'm going to pray. And I want to invite you to just open your heart to God. Uh, The Holy Spirit is always here. But we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to just make himself known. Reveal his presence to us in in a way that's tangible. In a way that uh, we can sense and hear and know what he's wanting to speak to us. So my invitation to you is to ask the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, speak to me. What are the things that you're wanting to whisper and speak, communicate? What are the things that maybe you have already spoken to me in, in times past, but... I've either not wanted to listen or I've chosen not to listen or I wasn't able to listen. My, my mind, my heart wasn't there yet, but now I want to listen. Now I want to respond. Now I want to obey. I invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you. So let me pray. God, right now, we come to you, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to speak to us. Your words are life. We thank you, Jesus, that you've come to wash and forgive and cleanse our sin, our rebellion, to take the tree that we've uprooted and and to replant it, to bring forth life. God, for some of us, I pray that that would look like our lives beginning to become fruitful again, as opposed to languishing and broken. So God, bring life right now, we pray.